0: Hello and welcome to the Scholar Circle, ScholarCircle.org. I'm Maria Armodian. In this hour, Niger's promising democracy was toppled by a military coup. What were the causes of that coup? And first, Ethiopia is the first nation to recognize the breakaway region of Somalia called Somaliland since its declaration of independence 33 years ago. Why did Ethiopia recognize it? And what does it mean for peace in the region? Doug Becker explores.
1: I'm Doug Becker. Somalia has been one of the most fractured and unstable countries now for the last few decades. As the Cold War was ending in the early 1990s, a region of this nation called Somaliland declares their independence from the government in Mogadishu. And a reminder this is the same period when the nation had had such a weak state that the U.S. will lead a U.N.-authorized peacekeeping force to the nation to protect humanitarian convoys of food from warlords. No nation recognized Somaliland's declaration of independence, but this changed this past month. Neighboring Ethiopia has recognized Somaliland. What motivates this decision? What is the likelihood of a war, conflict between Ethiopia and Somalia over the recognition? And ultimately, Will Somaliland likely become an independent state? We discussed the Ethiopian Memorandum of Understanding and Recognition of Somaliland this week, and our panel is Marcus Virgil He He's a lecturer at the Institute of Social Anthropology at the University of Leipzig. He's the author of Between Somaliland and Puntland, Marginalization, Militarization, and Conflicting Political Visions and is co-editor of Borders and Borderlands as Resources in the Horn of Africa with James Curry and Dynamics of Identification and Conflict, Anthropological Encounters. And Alexi Ulenin. he's a researcher at the Center for International Studies at the University of Lisbon. He's also a professor at the United States International University Africa and associate fellow at the Horn International Institute for Strategic Studies. He's the author of External Power Competition in the Horn of Africa, Somaliland's Quest for International Recognition and Development, and Inheriting Power, Somaliland's Political Institutions and the 2017 Presidential Elections. Thank you both very, very much for joining us. And Marcus Hohn, I'll ask you the first question, as the Cold War is ending, this region in Somalia called Somaliland will declare their independence. What's the motivation for Somaliland to declare their independence, and how integrated are they with the central uh, government in Mogadishu?
2: Yeah, thank you very much. I think the declaration of independence of Somaliland was very much the product of the Somali civil war, which started in northern Somalia in the 1980s. So um, there was this military dictatorship under General Mohamed Siad Barre, who came to power in 1969. And who established initially a socialist, um, you know, socialist um, regime throughout the 1970s. And Then the Ogaden War happened between 1978 and 79, which um, you know put Somalia against Ethiopia over the territories, Somali inhabited territories in eastern Ethiopia, the so-called Ogaden region. You know, and over this conflict, Somalia lost its most important political and military allies, the Soviet Union. And uh, I believe in 1981, the United States of America stepped in to back up the military dictatorship in Somalia against socialist Ethiopia. And um, in this um, period, in the early 1980s, um, Somali guerrilla movements were established. One of them was the Somali National Movement, which hailed from northwestern Somalia, which is today Somaliland. And it was backed by Ethiopia. The end of the 80s, at the end of the Cold War, actually, the military dictatorship in Mogadishu lost um, also the support of, you know, the United States of America and other Western powers. At the same time, actually, also the socialist regime in Ethiopia was falling apart. And in this context, you know, when um, the regimes were falling apart in Mogadishu and Addis and various guerrilla groups came to power um, in Somalia, but also Ethiopia, You know, then um, you know the declaration of independence of Somaliland happened. And one small thing I wish to add, which is important, is that initially, you know, the Somali national movement, which was, you know, the driving force in northwestern Somalia against the military dictatorship, was in alliance with a couple of other guerrilla groups, Somali guerrilla groups. One of them called United Somali Congress, um, and the other one called Somali Patriotic Movement. And these three guerrilla groups actually had an agreement in 89 that once the military dictatorship is overthrown in Mogadishu they will establish a new government for Somalia however when the you know the dictatorship fell in January 1991 the other guerrilla movements you know didn't adhere to this agreement you know particularly the United Somali Congress started infighting you know over power in Mogadishu which was the most important economic and political hub of Somalia back then And this happened in early 1991. Then the other guerrillas, particularly as the Somali National Movement, realized that they cannot establish a new Somalia together with their guerrilla colleagues. And as a second best option, I would say, um, the Republic of Somaliland was declared as an independent state in order to distance oneself from the unfolding chaos, the second phase of the Somali civil war in, in Mogadishu. So in sum, I would say the Declaration of Independence of Somaliland is a result of a long-standing civil war which started in northern Somalia in the 1980s and you know the disagreement between the various guerrilla movements which had the plan to topple the military dictatorship. And so mm-hmm. to say as a fallback option, Somaliland was declared in order to get the distance to this chaos and state collapse in southern Somalia.
1: And uh, Alexei Ulyanen, I know that in a number of these conflicts across Africa, that the process of sort of the creation of these territories as colonies, it served European interests. It didn't serve local interests. Is this a case where there's populations, there's ethnicities uh, within a region that were kind of compelled to become part of a political entity, and then therefore. Uh, there's an ethnic group that is then demanding their independence or is there something else going on with respect to this, this process of uh, of Somaliland wanting their independence?
3: Yes, thank you, Doug. Yeah, this is definitely one of those cases in which we have um particular population group which is a dominant in uh, within former colonial boundaries. Somali inhabited areas in the Horn of Africa, were colonized by different colonial powers. Italy being one of them, um, and uh, Britain being another one of them, uh, France being another one of them, and then we could call Ethiopia as a kind of a colonizing power of uh, some of the some of the Somali areas, so Somali inhabited areas. Um, what happened with uh, Somaliland, of course, is that uh, Somaliland was a British colony, which was um, administered differently from the what is today's core of Somalia, um, which used to be an Italian colony. And uh, what, of course, is the case with the with the former British possession, um, which is today Somaliland is that it's dominated by one particular clan group of Somalis um, called Isaac. And uh, this, this clan group, of course, also formed sort of the heart of the Somali national movement, the guerrilla movement or rebel movement, which towards the end of the civil war was largely in control of this uh, territory as well so here what marcus mentioned earlier about the declaration of independence and uh, how it was the perhaps the second best option um for the group we we should keep in mind of course that um snm was largely in control of uh, what used to be the British Somaliland area or territory. And uh, of course, its clan base um, or identity base, if you will, uh, was Isak clan, which was different from um, its allies or the other guerrilla movements that it had been working with uh, during the civil war to overthrow the Siad Barre regime. So, There are those factors there as well. Um, I think that makes Somaliland in itself uh, a very unique or special case um, in Africa. And uh, of course, this issue of of colonial borders, um, which haunts us still still today, uh, is, is there which is which is part of the, or the also the legitimation of today's Somaliland government to actually uphold this this idea of independence.
1: But one thing I want to follow up on here then is that in so many of these other colonies, former colonies in Africa, we frequently get these descriptions of states that perhaps have been divided because of European, colonial interests. But Alexi, you described um, Somalia as kind of the reverse of that process, where you have this division of this territory because of the multiple European presences and including Ethiopian presence, and then sort of being forced, I guess, potentially back together. So Somalia, am I correct in this, that Somalia seems to be kind of the opposite of a number of African uh, colonies?
3: or basically very early from uh, basically very early on uh, soon after the independence in the 1960s and especially after the takeover by the, the siad bar government in 1969 there was a there has been this 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 idea of 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 somalia or or somali inhabited territories reuniting uh, sort of a nationalist idea among among the among the Somali, uh, partic- particularly emanating from from Mogadishu, for a long time, uh, in which the idea would be that uh, countries like uh, Djibouti, then of course Eastern Ethiopia, and to some extent also Northern Kenya, which is which is Somali inhabited, should be brought back to to this idea of uh, of of a greater somalia if you will um so so there seems to have been a colonial partition um against which this sort of uh, nationalist sentiment has been working uh, um and 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 uh, of course the ogaden war which Marcus mentioned is is one of the manifestations of the attempt to particularly uh, join by force um parts of eastern Ethiopia which are Somali inhabited to 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 Somalia proper, so to speak.
1: And Marcus, you had some thoughts on this as well.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, one thing which should be clear is that Somalis is considered to be one ethnic group, regardless where they live in the Horn of Africa, in eastern Ethiopia or northern Somalia, Somaliland, Southern Somalia, in Kenya, or even in parts of Djibouti. I mean, they speak the same language, they are mostly Sunni Muslims, they have very similar culture, 100% of course, but very similar. So generally, until you know, until recently, there was no doubt that um, all Somalis in the Horn of Africa belong to one ethnic group, or they form one ethnic group. And this idea of belonging together existed already in the 1940s and 1950s, in a reaction to the colonial division, as Alexis said. No, I mean between French and Djibouti, Fra- French Somalis in Djibouti, Ethiopia, Eastern uh, Eastern uh, Ethiopia, Somalia territories, northern Kenya and Italian and the British territories. So there was this very strong drive of unification along ethnic lines, let's say after the Second World War, you know and this drive actually emanated from all over Somalia, and particularly also from the territory which is today Somaliland. In Horgeza, which is the capital of Somaliland, there was a strong sentiment of unification of all Somalis under one government. And when, you know, then, you know, on 26th of June, the British territories became independent, um, on the provision that they unite with the rest of Somalia, with Italian Somalia, um, just a few days later, on 1st of July. And back then, the politicians who were leading Somalis from the British territories were actually willing, and they were actually very strongly pro-unification. So, um, And the idea was not only to unite with Italian Somalia, but also to to bring the Somalis from Eastern Ethiopia and from Northern Kenya and from Djibouti under one government. That's called the so-called Greater Somalia Politics. And this Greater Somalia Politics was the dominant... Form of politics of Somali governments, you know, throughout the 1960s and, you know, in the in the 1970s. So um, these divisions, which we are seeing today and which also Alexi talked about, I think from a historical perspective, are like, you know, a reinterpretation of history to some degree. Now, of course, there are different colonial traditions. The British territory was having a different colonial administration than the Italian one, also a different style of administration. But the ordinary Somalis, regardless where they lived in the Horn of Africa, had this very strong sentiment of belonging together. Whereas today, you know, like 60 years after the fact of unification of at least the British and the Italian territories, we see all these divisions. So I think we have to be clear that history is always... Interpreted through the present, right, and from a present perspective. So, but if you read the older sources on Somali politics in the Horn of Africa, it's very clear that in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, the majority of Somalis wanted greater Somalia and wanted unification and wanted to overcome colonial divisions. And in this sense, from my perspective, you know, the Declaration of Independence of Somaliland is in a way. Counter, countering, counterintuitive. It's not something you would expect after you had decades of ethnic, um, ethnic, um, ethnic attempts to unite. Right. But anyway, so that that's. I think we have to be careful here. That history is a quite dynamic, quite dynamic um, field, and um, also Somalis today interpret Somali history very different from their fathers or grandfathers or mothers and grandmothers did. No,
1: absolutely. And, and you're listening to Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Doug Becker. We're discussing Somaliland's Declaration of Independence and the recent uh, Ethiopian decision to recognize this independence. And our panel today is Marcus Hon of the University of Leipzig and Alexei Ulenin of the University of Lisbon. So to kind of then fast forward to these current decision on the part of Ethiopia Alexei I'll I guess I'll start with you and ask you this Somaliland declares their independence and no country recognizes it so I guess one of the quandaries here then are that we have to try to wrestle with why does Ethiopia recognize it in 2024
3: yes thank you um of course yeah uh, this was like what came came out from our our, our earlier earlier discussion of course was that Somaliland, Declared itself independent in a, in a context of, of 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 civil war, and it was a it was a kind of a window of opportunity to do so when when uh, two governments were collapsing uh, or had collapsed uh, both in 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 Mogadishu in, in Somalia and also in in, in Ethiopia. Um, at that point in time, of course. Um, the Somali civil war and 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 what we would say sort of the lack of central authority continued. Uh, the situation hasn't gone become uh, in, in hasn't improved tremendously even today uh, when 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 we look at Somalia and, and and particularly the 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 reach of central authority despite uh, decades of state building um and peace building uh it continues to be uh in a difficult situation um so at that time of course when somaliland uh, declared itself independent um it wasn't really a opportune time particularly for 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 outside powers to to to, to recognize it and then we continued uh, there didn't seem to be much of interest uh, for that at the time um, ethiopia went ahead um, with a new government after the state collapse uh, the Tigray people's liberation front uh, took over um, and uh, ruled ethiopia until uh, 2018 before the current uh, current leadership Took over under Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed Ali. But um, there has been this kind of an aspiration uh, for a long time um, in Ethiopia, which is landlocked, to find itself um, sea access or direct sea access. in the early 90s, of course, in the regional context, we, we have to recognize that uh, Eritrea was becoming independent. And Eritrea had been dominated by Ethiopia um, for decades. And um, Eritreans had been engaging in a liberation war against uh, against Ethiopia, um, which they effectively won at the time when, when Ethiopian... Regime collapsed in 1991, um, and uh, long story short, Eritrea became independent, and uh, that also meant that after a few years of that, when when uh, when relations between Ethiopia and Eritrea worsened, Ethiopia lost uh, access to Eritrean ports to the Red Sea. Now, then. It went ahead and uh, forged an increasingly close relationship with uh, Djibouti, which is another uh, littoral country and uh, the Red Sea and um, at the Babel el Mandab. And uh, actually, Djibouti has been the main logistics route for Ethiopian imports and exports uh, since since the nineties and. Uh, However, this does not provide Ethiopia direct sea access, but 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 um, a sort of a lifeline through Djibouti. And uh, as of late, the Ethiopian government has been, well, I think October, uh, October last year, um, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed uh, made some relatively forceful comments about how Ethiopia historically deserves an access to the sea. Now, Somaliland... Has a long coastline in the Gulf of Aden and uh, historically close relations with Ethiopia. So um, this memorandum of understanding should be actually thought about in this in this context and and Ethiopia, in exchange for sea access, which Somaliland uh, seems to have granted, now um, would actually um, want to consider or take an in-depth consideration to actually finally recognizing uh, Somaliland as a a sovereign state. However, um, obviously this has not happened yet and we are in the making of possibly something. Um, But I think perhaps uh, Marcus can also uh, fill me in here
1: a little bit more on this. Yes, absolutely, Marcus. Go ahead.
2: I think you're absolutely right, Alexi. That um, this is this this again. This has a long historical um, background. This, this demand of Ethiopia to get an access to the sea. Of course, the question: Why now in 2024? Like after 33 years of the unilateral declaration of independence of Somaliland, why now? after Ethiopia has actually engaged with the rest of Somalia, also with Mogadishu, quite intensively over the past few years, fighting al-Shabaab. So, I mean, it's it's in a way almost a million dollar question, um, because it was really not um, really um, publicly announced before 1st of January, right? I mean, there was a meeting between the government in Mogadishu, the Mogadishu government, Somalia, um, and the Somaliland government in Djibouti, end of December 2023, in which um, a normal process of a long standing process of negotiations between Mogadishu and Hargeisa was continued, picked up again, talking about the political future of Somalia and Somaliland, due to the fact that Somaliland has not been recognized internationally and officially also by the United Nations and many other international powers. Um, government in Mogadishu is representing the whole of Somalia. So, and, uh, But everybody realized that de facto um, Somaliland land has um, had a different trajectory. So therefore, in 2012, in, at a conference in London, these talks between the government in Mogadishu and the government in Hargeisa were um, initiated. And um, in December 2023, there was one of those meetings holding these talks in Djibouti. And, um, you know, for a few days, everybody believed that now, again, you know, these governments will negotiate probably somehow about either a joint political future of Somalia, or like a peaceful separation um, of Somalia and Somaliland. And then a few days later, on 1st of January 2024, Abi Ahmed and uh, Musi of Somaliland suddenly entered this Memorandum of Understanding, um, which um, grants Ethiopia access to the Red Sea in exchange for recognition of somaliland which of course completely undermines these previous talks between Mogadishu and Hargeisa so I think it was it was really astonishing for most observers also for many Somalis who I actually know that uh, they um were not expecting this um, agreement so I think the question why now suddenly the recognition of somaliland is on the table is really a pending question and it has not been answered also by the politicians involved i think also Abi ahmed couldn't really uh, he didn't give any explanation for that and he also and also musubishi of course didn't give any explanation beyond the fact that Somaliland for 33 years aspires to be an independent state but you know if you go into the current situation i mean one thought i have when i think about this mou is that Somaliland is currently in a very weak position. The government of Somaliland is in a very weak position. Something which has not yet been talked in this conversation, but which is a fact, is that there has been a massive fighting in eastern Somaliland in the territory called Solsanak and Ain, which is um, you know centering around the town of Las Anod. Um, there has been massive fighting in 2023 between the Somaliland army and local militias, who represent you know, a certain part of the population of what is called Somaliland who do not accept the secession, right? So there was in a way a war, a small civil war inside of Somaliland, which um, was undermining the position of the government in Rogesa to be an United States. And on 25th of August 2023, the militia which was holding the government of Somaliland. Managed to defeat the Somaliland army in eastern in the eastern territories. So um, actually, the Musebihi, who is the president of Somaliland, currently has been defeated. His politics and his army have been defeated in mid of 2023, and he faces a lot of internal opposition in Somaliland, even in the center of Somaliland. Now there's a political party called Wadani, which really. Demands the holding of election. The elections, the presidential elections, have been postponed since November 2022. And many people in the center of Somaliland say that Musebihi, the president, knows that if these elections will be held, he's going to lose. You know, the opposition is very strong and he has lost a war, basically. In Somaliland. Which means, you know, this is at least for me uh, one of the explanations of this memorandum of understanding by entering it. In a, in a in a surprising way he tries to change his legacy you know he has a legacy of rather destructive legacy right i mean of you know postponing presidential elections facing a lot of opposition inside sumarelang fighting against the opposition in the east by military means and losing this war so he was actually with a back against the wall and when this mou came in january 2024 he suddenly appears to be like the one who realises the dream of Somaliland. And of course, one has to ask about Abi Ahmed. So Abi Ahmed also has gone through a very rough period of presidency, fighting in the Tigray region in northern Ethiopia. Um, and only in 2022, I believe, there has been a peace agreement after lots of casualties and suffering. And I think he also is facing currently opposition by the Amhara, a very powerful group also in northern Ethiopia, northwestern Ethiopia and also some opposition by other groups inside Ethiopia so the question is is abi ahmed also quite a weak president at the moment and this mou which guarantees access of ethiopia to the z which, which is again a, a long held dream by many ethiopians changes his the fate of his presidency you know from being rather destructive to being suddenly a hero so i mean that's just my thoughts you know i don't have any privileged um, information about but I think one has to observe this kind of, you know, this situation from the outside and realize the MOU was very surprising and the two presidents who entered it faced a lot of dem- domestic challenges when they ended. And now it seems to to change everything to the better.
1: Now, and that's always a huge challenge when trying to analyze something that's happened relatively recently and surprisingly. Um, so that, that makes perfect sense. The last Big topic I want to talk about, and Alexei, I'll lead with you because I know you've you've written about questions of uh, external power competition recognition. What has been the reaction of regional partners, I immediately think of international organizations, has there been any sort of reaction coming out of, say, the AU or regional you know, actors, perhaps the IGAD or someone, on this recognition of Somaliland? How have African leaders responded to this?
3: Uh, yeah, the responses have been largely negative or or rejecting the MOU and its possible implications. In, to, in, particularly in terms of of uh, possible official uh, recognition of Somaliland as an independent state. Um, regional organisations, mm, by and large, uh, have have called for caution. Uh, called for. Uh, Negotiations among stakeholders, which which would which would mean um, that Hargeisa um, or Somaliland government is is strongly encouraged to 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 actually uh, actually negotiate with the central government and and the officially recognized government of of Somalia in Mogadishu. And, and also the other stakeholders, and obviously Ethiopia would be one of them, um, saw that there would be some sort of an amicable amicable uh, resolution to this. Because there is a fear that this situation might escalate and uh, that there might be more um, sub-regional and regional confrontations um here. So... Um, there was a moment, for example, where the sub regional organization which has for a long time been sort of uh, seen as the peacemaking organization in the Horn of Africa, the egat the intergovernmental authority on development um the secretary made a made a statement um uh, which Somalia government actually found not to be Sort of forceful or 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 pressurizing pressurizing enough towards uh, towards Ethiopia and uh, and Somaliland government and there was and we could see how there is there is a lot of pressure um, on Mogadishu um, and uh, and the government there of uh, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed who is the president of 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 Somalia to actually try to find any sort of uh mechanisms to to refute this this uh, mou and its consolidation or possible consolidation so so uh, um there is condemnation uh quite largely also the Somalia's international partners have uh, particularly gulf states um, and and others egypt for example turkey have actually condemned the deal Um, and uh, of course the president of somalia has also signed a signed a law to 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 actually reject it um and and uh, and uh, state that it's a null and void so as as part of a part of a sort of a, a violation of territorial integrity and 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 sovereignty of of Somalia as a whole um of course this is this is a difficult question because because um, somaliland functions as a de facto state. Um, So it actually has a control of its own territory, it has its own government and so forth. It fulfills the Montevideo criteria for statehood, um, which sort of indicates that, and and, and shows that Mogadishu uh, has very little uh, coercive power over, over, uh, over Somaliland. Um, there is of course also a certain precedence here that that needs to be need to be taken into account because uh, several governments or government related um, organizations and companies around the world have actually had unofficial relations with Somaliland for for quite quite a long time, and uh, many governments actually have a. Uh, Consulates in Hargeisa um, and uh, Somaliland in exchange has liaison offices in various countries in the world. Um, so it has a level of uh, relations which are not now, of course, official because because Somaliland has not been uh, not been recognised. But there have been several business deals. For example, um, the company. Uh, Dubai Ports World, which which made a huge, uh, huge uh, port deal in Somaliland in Berbera, and is actually managing the Berbera port in in Somaliland, which is seen to become one of the logistics highways, so to speak, for Ethiopia as well. Um, actually, made a deal with 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 Hargeisa, you know, and uh, that was very little criticized around the world um uh, and uh, it is a business deal that's that's there there are oil companies that have been uh, are, uh, exploring in uh, in 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 somaliland for example british uh, turkish and so forth so it's interesting because why is a memorandum of understanding which is not a legal binding document between Ethiopia and Somaliland now causing so much havoc. Um, of course, part of it is because there is this idea of finally recognizing Somaliland. So this is this is, of course, something that is extraordinary because other Somaliland's other foreign partners have not gone that far yet. So I think that is that is not a difference. But there are a lot of similarities with with the sort of the business as usual that has been going on over over decades between uh, uh, foreign powers and Somaliland at the same time.
1: Yeah. So, um, Marcus Fon, I'm going to give you then the last word. There's been concerns that you know this recognition could lead to a conflict, could lead to potentially a you know a war, certainly between. government Mogadishu and and Somaliland, also possibly internationalizing with Ethiopia. Are those concerns legitimate? Is this an area where we should be particularly concerned and such a vital area, the Horn of Africa, that this could be a region that we're watching fall into
2: a war? I think there is some reasons, there are some reasons to be concerned. in two senses, actually. I mean, one is that um, this whole idea of you know what Somalia is in the future, this has not been really sorted out. And I think also the international community has some responsibility for that. On the one hand, the United Nations and all major powers uh, across the globe have always pretended, if you like, or held on to the one Somalia. Policy, right? I mean, all, they all, you know, Mogadishu has a representation in the United Nations. And whenever you read any official report by the UN, um, Somaliland and other, you know, autonomous areas in Somalia, it's written in inverted commas. And the only representative of Mali people in the Horn of Africa and in the borders of the Republic of Somalia is the government in Mogadishu. So, this is on the one hand the international policy since 1991. On the other hand, as Alexis said, many businesses and you know, quite a number of governments have quietly or not so quietly over the past 20 years engaged de facto with Somaliland, short of recognition. And Somaliland has established itself in the center, in the capital of the city of Hargeisa, and then also in other major cities like that, but has developed tremendously over the last 20 years um, into like a de facto state. And many young people in Somaliland believe their country is actually independent, and they also have a lot of international support. And this created a very strange and contradictory situation where, on the one hand, a lot of resources pumped into Mogadishu in order to re-establish a new Somali state and also fight al-Shabaab and create security and, and so on. And at the same time, you know, there are partners and supporters of Somaliland, also at the international level, but short of recognition, who nurture the sentiment of a whole generation in northwestern Somalia or Somaliland to be part of an independent state, right? And this, in a way, is clashing currently, and these clashes have been triggered um, by this MOU, or they have really boiled up now due to this MOU. So there's this one risk that actually... There will be serious conflict, political conflict, maybe also military conflict, over this question: so what now really is Somalia? And this conflict could unfold, you know, along the border between Somalia and Ethiopia, you know, in the also in the Ogaden region, in the eastern Ethiopian part, um, where a lot of Somalis live. So there, there is a certain risk that insecurity um, manifests itself in this territory. Um, I think the most serious risk of conflict due to this MOU actually exists inside Somaliland, in this area, which I already mentioned, in the eastern territories, like in Solsanak and Ain, and around the city of Arnold and also smaller towns like Buhot and Tilek and so on. So, I mean, at the end of the day, there is a considerable part of the population which is claimed as subjects of the government in Horgeysa, who are actually rejecting the independence of Somaliland. And they have been rejecting this independence for a very long time. Since more than 20 years, many people said, we do not want to be part of Somaliland, we want to be part of Somalia. And this MOU kind of um, forces them also to take a stand. So my prediction would be, if this MOU is really put into practice, and Ethiopia gains access to the sea in exchange for officially recognizing Somaliland, this will trigger the first serious armed conflict not between Mogadishu and Hargeisa, or between Mogadishu and Addis, but between you know, the people in eastern Somaliland and those in central Somaliland. And this conflict already has happened in 2023, in the first phase. And The MOU, if implemented, you know, risks re-escalating this conflict. I think that's, that's my assessment.
1: Absolutely. And, and a reminder then of the you know, the importance of the region. Anywhere there's conflict in the world, we should be concerned and certainly uh, advocating for peace. But in particular, in an area around the Horn of Africa that's in the news for other reasons with respect to you know questions of shipping, et cetera, but it's always been in the news because of its incredibly important geographic area. A reminder that it's all become more complicated conflict potentially um uh, erupting from this area and the importance of continuing to monitor this in the hopes that we could avoid war and hopefully produce some sort of peace within the region for the people living in the region we've been discussing Ethiopia's recognition of Somaliland and the drive for Somaliland's independence the future of Somalia on this week's show the panel today has been Marcus Hone. He's a lecturer at the Institute of Social Anthropology at the University of Leipzig. He's the author of Between Somaliland and Puntland, Marginalization, Militarization, and Conflicting Political Visions. He's the co-editor of Borders and Borderlands as Resources in the Horn of Africa with James Curry and Dynamics of Identification and Conflict, Anthropological Encounters. Alexei Ulenin. He is a researcher at the Center for International Studies at the University of Lisbon, a professor at the United States International University of Africa, and an associate fellow at the Horn International Institute for Strategic Studies. He's the author of External Power Competition in the Horn of Africa, Somaliland's Quest for International Recognition and Development, and Inheriting Power, Somaliland's Political Institutions, and the 2017 Presidential election. Thank you both very, very much for joining us and providing insights into this important issue. Welcome. Thank you
3: very much. Thank you, Doug.
0: This is the Scholar Circle, ScholarCircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. Last year, Niger's promising democracy was toppled by a military coup. We'll revisit that coup and the causes to remind us of the need for continuing pressure on military governments to return to democracy and the rule of law. Doug Becker explores.
1: I'm Doug Becker. In the last two years, Africa has experienced a growing trend of military coups against civilian regimes. Niger's democratically elected president, Mohamed Bazoum, was overthrown by his military on July 26. The military government has faced international pressure to return the president to power, but it shows no interest in surrendering power itself. On today's show, we will examine these coups and explore what it means for African governance. Our guest is Brett Logan Carter. He's an assistant professor of political science and international relations at the University of Southern California, and I'll note a colleague of mine at USA. He's the author of Can Western Donors Constrain Repressive Governments, Evidence from Debt Relief Negotiations in Africa in 2022, and is the co author of Propaganda in Autocracies, Institutions, Information, and the Politics of Belief, co authored with Aaron Baggett Carter. Rick Carter, thanks for joining us. First question The coup in Niger. Why did the military in Niger overthrow the government? What were the conditions that led to that?
4: So, Doug, first, thanks so much for having me on. It's it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the show. I think it's helpful to view this in two different ways. There's the proximate reason, and then I think there are uh, a set of underlying reasons that I, I think are really essential to understanding um, why coups have spiked in recent years. The proximate reason for the coup in Niger was you know, as old as politics itself, right? A power struggle between the democratically elected president, Mohamed Bazoum, and the head of the republican guard bazoom since he was elected a few years ago um has i should say in free and fair elections that were credited widely by the international community um, has pursued a closer relationship with the united states with other western allies which has really served to the in many ways to the benefit of uh, nigerian citizens so the sahel as your listeners are probably aware is increasingly the core theater for extremist violence in the world. Last year, it accounted for nearly 50% of uh, civilian deaths compared to about 1% 15 years ago, right? So the Sahel is really this hot seat for, for extremist violence. So there was some frustration within the Nigerian military um, about this closer attack with the West, which I should say included uh, an American military base, um, which has some sophisticated drone technology that the U.S. uses for counterterrorism operations across the region. So the the head of the Republican Guard, and I should say the Republican Guard is the president's core personal security, um, generally comprised of, of loyalists. The head of the Republican Guard uh, heard that he was likely to be removed. Um, and so preemptively, he removed President Bazoom. So that's really the, the proximate reason this underlying power struggle. But I think there are a set of broader reasons, a set of broader factors um, that are really essential to understanding these ongoing events. First, since the end of the Cold War, there's been a marked decline in coups really across the world and certainly in sub-Saharan Africa. Whereas the vast majority of Africa's autocrats lost power during the Cold War as a result of elite power struggles, so think coups, civil wars, etc., since the, end of the Cold War, autocrats have overwhelmingly lost power due to threats from below. Right, so think mass protests, think popular protests to abide the results of you know can kind of reasonably free elections, popular pressure to abide term limits. Right, presidential term limits. There is a sense that this anti-coup norm is eroding. Um, so, starting in about 2020, the rate of coups um, essentially spiked. For the preceding 30 years, uh, since the Berlin Wall collapsed. The rate of coups had something you know like fallen by more than half relative to the Cold War period. It was really remarkable, and more and more failed than succeeded, equally remarkable, right? So I mean, an, an equally fundamental change relative to the to the Cold War period. That all began change in twenty twenty. Uh, so the rate of coups has spiked, uh, more succeeding now than failing, um, and so the the coup in Niger is you know one really at this point you know uh, across the continent. We could all talk about Mali, Burkina Faso, and 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 a handful of other countries. There are a variety of reasons that um, this anti-coup norm took hold after the Berlin Wall collapsed. But I think the most widely accepted explanation is that the international community began to force newly ascendant military dictators to cede power to uh, civilian democratically elected governments. And so think about it then from the perspective, you know, a would-be, would-be military dictator, the risks of coups are you know, obviously profound. And if the benefits uh, from the coup are uncertain, right, given the fact that one w- might have to cede power soon, then, you know, again, coups become much less attractive. Anyway, so there's really been this um, kind of market decline in the, in the anti-coup norm since 2020, which I think is a, is a real cause of concern, not just for the U.S. Uh, from a security perspective, but frankly, from a humanitarian perspective as well. And I know there's kind of two different audiences that could potentially pressure military governments to
1: surrender power once they've launched a coup, Western donors and African donors. Actually, I think I want to start with the African setting. I mean, for example, the African organizations, the AU, ECOWAS, you know, for example, had for a long time kind of just treated these, these are sovereign issues. We're not going to question who's going to govern. But the last decade, decade and a half, at least, it seems like they've become a lot more aggressive, wanting to yeah, um, absolutely. overthrow
4: the government. Why has that not been successful in this, yeah, this so recent trend? I, I think there are two things to consider. So for a long time, you know, kind of the, the core threat that African presidents confronted um, were, you know, civil wars, secessions, etc. And so for a long time, you know, the AU and its predecessor, the Organization for uh, for African Unity, the OAU, were overwhelmingly concerned with maintaining borders that that governments essentially inherited upon um, upon independence around 1960 or so. But as the anti coup norm has receded, um, you know, there's been new concern that African presidents could fall victim to these coups as well. And so, consequently, the AU, ECOWAS, other regional institutions. You know, have become uh, very vocal in terms of condemning them. and it, there's some real. And I want to I want to emphasize that, especially uh, on the AU side, there's some real irony in this. So, for instance, the, the current day-to-day uh, president of the African Union is Musafaki. Musafaki uh, was for a long time uh, Idris Deby's. So Idriss Deby was a former dictator of Chad, um, who was killed in a visit to a military base about a year and a half ago. His son took power uh, and his son is sort of enmeshed in the same kinds of geopolitical struggles um, that I think are central to understanding uh, ongoing events in, in Niger and Gabon. Um, in any event, Musafaki was uh, for a long time Idris Bibi's prime minister and his foreign affairs minister, which is to say that Musafaki served one of the continent's dictators who had, you know, one of the worst human rights records, records of economic corruption, right? So, the, I mean, there is something very ironic about, you know, the AU's current leadership in condemning coups, right? I mean, they, they certainly haven't condemned, uh, with any regularity, uh, you know, massively fraudulent elections, right? That it just to be, uh, you know, Bazin's predecessors, you know, Sassou Gesso, Bongo and Gabon, et cetera, um, you know, have have organized. So so I, it's worth underscoring that. But there's also, I think, another angle to this, especially from the ECOWAS perspective. And I think this actually tells us something um, really fundamental about the implications from kind of this current, you know, new era of geopolitical competition. So your listeners might recall that in 2017, January 20, 21st, 2017, Yaya Jemma, who had ruled uh, the Gambia for uh, roughly the preceding two decades, um, and, you know, in the meantime had again acquired, you know, among the con- worst human rights records, a, a horrible record of economic mismanagement, you know, ruled among you know the world's poorest countries. Yaya yeah, yeah, Jemma tried to, you know, to, to rig an election. He did so in a very um, skillless way, I suppose, you know, is is the you know, euphemistic way of putting it. Remarkably, ECOWAS essentially forced him to step down in favor of his neophyte rival, uh, the current president, Adama Barrow, threatening military intervention the ECOWAS um, intervention was uh, in this case led by Senegal which borders the Gambia on all three sides basically because of kind of a you know a, a weird legacy of colonialism um, whenever France took Senegal uh, Britain took the Gambia um, which basically has like, the Gambia river which provided kind of an entry point into you know into the western part of the continent anyway so so Senegal the Senegalese government uh, essentially coordinated the ECOWAS intervention force forced JAMA to resign Now for the Nigerian coup, the Nigerian government has coordinated this ECOWAS force, threatened to intervene militarily if the coup plotters um, didn't release uh, Bazoum and and restore him uh, to the presidency. What's fascinating, though, is the extent to which other regional powers, think in particular uh, the new military governments in Mali and Burkina Faso, and also Moscow have threatened intervention if an ECOWAS force intervened, right? This is a fundamental distinction between what happened in in the Gambia in 2017 um, and and what's going on now. So so kind of the, the broader geopolitical point is that increasingly the African continent is a theater of these proxy kind of influence battles that marked the Cold War but it then subsided uh, when the Berlin Wall collapsed. So the the Malian and Burkina Bay military regimes are uh, backed by Moscow, um, in particular, the Wagner group, which has been implicated in a series of tro- of atrocities, uh, but which has provided the Malian and, and Burkina Bay governments, you know, weapons, security, you know, some assistance um, against rebels. You know, there's a real sense um, that the you know the Nigerian coup, you know, if it didn't, there's no evidence that I should be clear that it received active support from Moscow I should be I should be clear about that but you know there are networks you know informal communications networks you know that link governments um, really you know across the continent but certainly within regions and so in some sense it, you know it would be surprising um, given Niger's natural resource wealth think uranium potentially um, that the Wagner group would certainly you know Moscow certainly be, be keen to exploit so I mean it would be surprising if there wasn't some some at least sort of implication, I think, um, which is, I think, you know, again, so you know, how to kind of understand the, the Nigerian coup more broadly. Our guest today has been Brett Logan-Carter. He's an assistant professor of
1: political science and international relations at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Can Western Donors Constrain Repressive Governments? Evidence from Debt Relief Negotiations in Africa in 2022. And is the co-author of Propaganda in Autocracies, Institutions... Information and the Politics of Belief, and it's co-authored with Aaron Baggett-Carter. Brett Carter, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your expertise.
4: It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much,
0: Doug. And that's it for today's program. Thank you for listening. The Scholar Circle is hosted by Doug Becker. Its managing producer is Ankina Agassian. Mehike Chechi is our assistant producer. Sad Dongre is our webmaster and assistant producer. Our archives are at ScholarCircle.org. And our podcasts are on Apple and Google Podcasts and iTunes. Please follow us on at Scholar Circle or me at Armudian and join our Facebook page. I'm the founder, anchor, and occasional host, Maria Armudian.